People's Poetry Podcast with me, Jimmy Bowman. Hello, hello. Welcome to the People's Poetry Podcast. This is episode number four of series two thank you ever so much for joining me my name is jimmy bowman it's my absolute pleasure to have you here along with me this is the podcast that brings poetry to you the people as i travel across the uk talking to established and brand new poets alike in my mission to find out why we still have such a love affair with poetry as an aspiring poet myself i wanted to know why something as archaic as poetry is still so loved and so relevant to many today. It's a big one, poetry people. This episode's featured poet is none other than the very truthful, raw, creative genius that is Bobby Parker. We discuss confessional poetry and dealing with difficult subjects within poetry, nostalgia, his wealth of work including his collections Blue Movie and Working Class Voodoo, addiction, class and becoming a parent. Here it is. Well, I'm very excited to be joined by the very talented Bobby Parker. Thank you so much for chatting to me, Bobby. Thank you for coming to see me today. Really good to meet you, Jimmy. Kidderminster. Sunny Kidderminster. You've been here a long time, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Grew up here. Yeah. Um, can't say I love the place, but um, it certainly gives a lot of inspiration. <laughs> yeah. For those unfamiliar with your work, um, could you describe, I suppose, the sort of themes that come into your, your work predominantly? Um, I think the confessional thing is probably pretty accurate, but um, the thing is with with the confessional uh, label is that it comes with connotations of um, of um, yeah confessing and trying to sort of um, get these sort of sins off your chest or something. But that's not really what I do. So I I'd say it's it is confessional, but um, I really can't think of any other way of describing it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, is it? It's very truthful. It's very sort of raw, isn't it? Lots of people online describe it as uncomfortable to read. How? I mean, as a writer, how? Because you know, it is like you use your sort of wounds or your experiences as a canvas. How? How does that make you feel reading people saying that about your work? Um, that's that's a really good question because that's something that's really been bothering me for a while. This kind of idea of of, of oversharing. Um, and earlier on in my career, it was um, you know being accused of shock shock tactics and stuff. I think if I can shock myself, and if I can um, if I can make myself feel um, that I'm that I'm not just telling on myself, but there's always a, an excitement in that as well. So yeah, I think. Um, I think the way the way that people describe it is definitely accurate. Um, it is uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable for me, and that's kind of when you know it's good. Like the same way as if if you laugh at your own writing, you know that it's it's probably going to be funny, and if you cry, it's probably going to be emotional. Um, so yeah. I mean, I've always said I had to do a speech for a poetry by heart thing at, at my school, yeah. and in it I said that uh, poetry for me is a literary act of bravery. Yeah. Um, and your work for me sort of epitomizes poetry and you know what it should be that sort of raw relevant truth yeah. how does someone turn something sort of so i suppose unconventional in terms of poetic subject matter into something of literary beauty because on the page it, it, what you do it is a craft and it is it is beautiful to read but it has got that uncomfortable side how, what's the process between turning that into the the finished product if you like Oh wow, yeah. I wish I, I wish I knew what that process was. It's one of those things that's kind of. Uh, I think writing and creating is kind of an intuitive act, and I think that um, it's become a, a thing that I that I know what I want and how I do it. But I'm not really too sure if I could really explain the process. I think that there's always, like you say about wounds. This is. I always feel like I've got a finger in it and a wound, so it just won't heal, and I'm constantly, you know, taking that finger out and and dabbing the page with its blood. You know, I just don't really feel that it's it is necessarily good for me anymore mm. but in the past it's been basically my therapy this idea of sharing and connecting and and hoping that other people have been through similar experiences can feel less alone yeah yeah that makes sense what what changed then if, if, if it started off as sort of therapy what what do you think's changed over the years well I think that it became a therapy so to begin with you know I, I wrote and and tried to be similar like um, a lot of my favourite writers at the time and then I discovered the Beats and, and Bukowski and 
writers like that. And that kind of gave me carte blanche to to write about whatever I wanted, you know, it's like, wow, I can actually write anything. Um, and that's what I was really interested about, uh, interested in from the beginning. But um, the process itself, I think there's always something really heartbreaking and kind of weird and funny in a way, mm -hmm. but it's not something I try to do. If something funny tries, if I'm trying to be funny, it's not going to work. But I think there's a certain, there's a balance between the tragic and the, and the comic and I think that that's a balance that's that I do try and maintain if I can because it can be really overwhelming for people to just read about a horrible experience that you had yeah. and and trigger them into thinking about the horrible you know so you got to try and transcend it in some way you got to try and figure yeah. out a way of of communicating without it being too overwhelming and upsetting for people which I think it is starting to become I think you have got that balance of sort of there's certain lines within your poetry where you find yourself laughing when you didn't think you were going to go down that that yeah, route initially. Yeah. So you do do that. When did you start writing poetry, and and why was that? Was it a therapy thing straight away, or I mean, it sounds like from what you're just saying, it became that. But what was your initial reason for starting writing poetry? Um, I was always a really creative, weird outsider kid, and so I was interested in uh, mainly drawing. I was always really good at art, and then um, writing just became. Uh, I was always a voracious reader with a quite a high reading age um, when I was a kid. So I was always writing stories and song lyrics and things like that. And then in, in high school, I just started just filling these little notebooks with really soppy little poems. Uh, I remember the first one, I found some notebooks out the other day, the first poem I wrote in school in one of these notebooks. So embarrassing. The title is called Betrayal of a Petal. <laughs> <laughs> so it was... Uh, so from there, from there, I just started trying to read through like the classics, and um, I was really hung up on like Larkin and and stuff like that, you know. Mm. Um, so it was a private thing. It was something I did without sort of realizing that's that's suddenly what I wanted to do. And then about sixteen, seventeen, um, I was in like factories and you know these kind of manual labour jobs but mainly in the factories I was able to sneak around the corner and start scribbling notebooks and stuff and, and started thinking about trying to get it published yeah um and you know that, that was quite a long but but very very good journey really I think when and how did you decide how much of yourself you were going to share within your poetry because you said it started off as quite a private thing yeah I think I think it is a natural part of my of my personality. I think that sharing um, and telling people too much, and and sometimes expecting people to tell me the same. Really, mm -hmm. I'm someone who, within moments of meeting, would tell you everything about me, um, if it's uncomfortable or not. And I think that the the work had to had to mirror that to, to be to have my voice. Um, and you know, a lot of people try and figure out what their voice is, and that's yeah. something you you start off with people telling you, you know your work is good but it's derivative or or whatever but i think um yeah it was it was just so important that it it felt like well here's my voice now i'm 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 oversharing but i'm using it um instead of just just letting it out in a conversation and and kind of wasting it that way i just chose to sort of channel it into the poetry i think it's a quality trait to be honest yeah, so yeah. just be frank from the start yeah. i really do you mentioned larkin and i read somewhere um you, Seamus Heaney as well so what Seamus what was it about those two in particular that interested you very early on uh, Seamus Heaney we did in high school English and it was the first poet that I ever really that ever that you know that sort of got my attention and I think it was it was the music of, of, the, of the language like mm. uh, lines like the as simple as like the squelch and slap of soggy peat yeah. things that stuck in my head and they had a music to them even if it wasn't necessarily something that I knew too much about, you know, farming and stuff like that and, and the rural stuff. But his poem Digging, especially, was, yeah. was just, it had such an impact on me. And it made me realise, well, these, on, the, on a, short, a short space on a page, or a couple of pages, you can really put someone through the ring and make them think about life mm. and make them appreciate what they have and really have a connection. Yeah. So that's that sort of musical, rhythmical bit, yeah, right? Yeah. And we were saying before we started recording, you know, you could have been the first Sleaford mod. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. I've read as well, sort of, trailing through any, any sort of old interviews I could find, um, and you, you spoke about, some years ago, about, you know, the past and how you don't really think about the past because there's too much going on in the present and 
looking at sort of the past from different angles and just feeling comfortable with it how much now how much of a writing do you feel now is you sort of continuing to just be comfortable with your past I suppose do you, do you think you've got past that or is it still an ongoing process no it's definitely still ongoing I feel very trapped in the past uh, and that's and that's common I think to abusive experiences that I went through and because I live in the pretty much by the place where I grew up you know it's 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 present all the time the past is always there and I'm always trying to make sense of it in the work and sometimes I'll write work and just go I'm just talking about the same things I've done in the other books mm. but um I think it's it's really strange it's really strange I think the the work now is it probably hasn't changed much since working class who do but I'm also trying to to use it to kind of underline a few things and then move on hopefully to some more kind of fictional stuff. Do you feel that the the past, perhaps, as much as it sort of motivates and inspires you, sometimes it, it can be a little bit sort of controlling in that you you get stuck in that perhaps. Yeah, yeah, you, you get stuck in it, and sometimes it feels that I'm I'm trying to write my way out. But as I said earlier, if you, if you're keeping those wounds open then it might be good for poetry, but it's not necessarily good for general mental health. Mm. Um, you know, I'm in therapy every week, so I have an hour every week where I'm talking about all this stuff as well, and then I'm coming down and, and writing about it, but a lot of my favourite writers um, are sort of doing similar things. Yeah. So it, it feels like I can't quite put that down yet, and I did think that maybe there's going to be a follow-up collection to, to Working Class Voodoo, but... Um, We'll have to see, really. I just I'm worried that I'm just going to keep repeating myself now in in terms of the work. Yeah. Um. And I just don't think it's challenging me much anymore. I've never really spoke about nostalgia before with any of the poets on here, but I feel like a lot of poets are n- nostalgic. I I have a real problem with nostalgia. In I don't think it. People talk about art oh, and oh, we was really nostalgic in a positive light, but for me, nostalgia is just you know almost trying to change or alter the past or i found out through a russell ramping i was listening to the other day nostalgia literally translates to owl pain is is nostalgia ever ever a positive thing do you think um i, I don't know anymore because if you look at the way culture's been going you know nostalgia's bringing up some real nastiness in in, in human nature uh, and i think that a lot of people getting hung up on nostalgia and the way things were and thinking they were better um I think nostalgia, when it comes to to art, is really important. That it, it it's an ingredient. That it's there's no getting away from it. I don't think. Mm. No. You talked about art. Read that you said art, and it's a great line. Art is the biggest kind of rebellion, yeah. and that made me think. Well, your, I mean, your poetic style is rebellious in many ways. I mean, it's very similar to prose. The subject matters yeah. quite, you know, unconventional. Do you feel accepted um, within the poetry community more? than ever now perhaps because I know you know when you started off you had these anxieties about your your poetry especially but yeah. scenes how it's taken off do you do you feel accepted within the poetry community now oh massively so I felt I felt very uh, accepted for quite a long time I was really lucky the first few books I, I put out with uh, nice forks and spoons press uh, maybe 2011 they were these weird little kind of zines really you know that a mixture of art and, and writing and stuff like that and at that point I hadn't connected with any of my peers and um, for some reason the first book Ghost Town Music really kind of put me on the map in terms of um, connecting with, with uh, like Luke Kennard and, and people like that, uh, Sam Riviere, um, really enjoyed what I was doing in an experimental way and then as it went on from there um, I just I think networking as well just going around to, to gigs and talking to people and I think if they if you're a genuine person it's um, it's it's easier to get along because I think a lot of people have have their motives and they they sort of want to further their career and stuff like that. Yeah. But I was never like that. I've always been really upfront with people and open, and I think that that helped as well. And being kind as well because yeah. there are so many poets who are you know arseholes and they're just they're not good people. Mm. Um, and I think that just just being a nice person was was enough as well. But I was very lucky, you know, I was able to travel, I was able to go to these gigs. And Facebook, years ago, felt like more of a, of a community like that. It doesn't feel like that anymore. Yeah. So at the time, I was able to connect with poets I've been reading for years and thought, you know, they'd, they'd never acknowledge who I am. And then suddenly, I'm getting letters saying, we really love your work. 
and it's just kind of went on from there and especially moving to London and getting to meet so many great poets um, I've, I think I've always been accepted I've been really lucky that way because I know a lot of people have hang-ups about not feeling that yeah. sense of community and I was lucky enough to have people on the underground kind of interested in what I was doing and then the more mainstream poets interested in what I was doing and I was kind of like that in high school as well you know mm. I was friends with the weirdos and friends with the popular kids but didn't really belong either way yeah so it, it feels exactly the same now yeah, yeah. that was yeah very similar story to me at school yeah. that yeah and you, you spoke then about sort of being accepted and I suppose one of the whole reasons I started doing this podcast was because I felt a lot of people view poetry as elitist or yeah, you know yeah. your work sort of transcends that idea doesn't it because you know anyone can access your work in terms of subject matter yeah. it's not classist really no. or elitist so no. how how did how did you get to that stage from sort of just writing these things because a lot of poets go down the slam route now don't they yeah, and they, yeah. they spend a lot of time on that circuit yeah. but I mean I could be wrong you might tell me I'm wrong but it seems like your work just sort of filtered into the right places how how did you get from a to b's hard work and good luck i think that's that's yeah. just the two things I, I worked really hard to begin with um i don't work as hard but i don't think i really need to because in those early, those early essential days when you find your voice and then you start networking and then i was lucky that the first live reading i did in a place called kitchen garden cafe in birmingham it was a night called poetry bites and um that first reading went down so well, it kind of set a precedent and I, it gave me confidence. But I went to as many gigs as I could. And that's where, where I learned what I was doing was different because the reactions people were having weren't great to begin with. People were disgusted or they didn't like the language. And these were played, you know, kind of coffee shops where people were eating cake and, you know. But I kept at it and, and we had events in, in Kidderminster where I was able to go and really mess about and, and, and try out new things. And also stuff that I could try out locally that if, if it got a really bad reaction, then I'd, I'd know that it was perhaps not something I, I should pursue. Yeah. But as far as from getting to, from A to B, I think I just, I've had a tremendous amount of good luck, um, but I, but working hard and, and reading everybody, trying to, you know, just try and figure out where, where the scene is and who's doing what. I think that's really important because we all talk about, you know, poets get together and they talk about all these different things. And yeah. I think that, being up to date on that stuff is pretty important, even yeah. if it's stuff that doesn't interest you. I think um, it, it's it's crucial to making sure that you can, you know, create your own space within that community. I agree. We were, I mean, in the cab, we were throwing names back and forth yeah. already within seconds. Yeah. So, yeah, certainly jotting those down. In terms of the writing process, then, have you, do you still find you have this sort of creative divide between serious and sort of experimental poetry? No, it's all serious at the moment. And I think that what has happened is, so I have a borderline personality disorder. And when I get really depressed and have a really bad depressive period, which which it was over uh, over the winter, and then around about January, when I had a break bet between being really depressed and, and feeling a bit better, um, I wrote loads. And then I've been painting uh, artwork for months and months. And then mm. I try and write every day, or at least tinker. And I like having a bunch of poems to tinker with. If I can tinker on poems for for months, it, it doesn't matter if I'm not writing new stuff. I'm still happy to keep fine-tuning stuff. And I find a good few poets now have said to me that they're lucky if they, they write one or two a year now. Yeah. Whereas when I started off, it would be one a day or two a day. I was going to say to you, early on, I saw that you said, you know, you sort of wrote almost pamphlets in, in weeks, but yes, you sort yeah. of went into a state of mania over that. Oh, definitely, yeah. The, the mania, uh, the first few books, like Ghost Town Music, Combatant, had a little pamphlet called Building Murder with a Smile, uh, one called Digging for Toys. Um, yeah, the, these all came out of like a couple of years. remember one night I was quite manic and I watched a documentary about Daniel Johnston um, and it really inspired me and everyone I showed that documentary to was really inspired but that particular one I remember when I finished it it was three in the morning and I went into my writing room and just started cutting up journals and, and writing and pasting things and and it was yeah a real manic period of, of creativity but um, looking back you know the stuff most of that stuff's out of print and I want it to kind of stay that way yeah, <laughs> yeah. and then working class voodoo I see you tweeted was four years in the making was it or was yeah, that right? between Blue Movie and Working Class Voodoo, yeah, and I mean a lot of that was, some of it was written in London, um, and 
a lot of it was sort of done in a year before it coming out but it was going to be a pamphlet to begin with and I just put out you know a little shout out on Facebook and said I'm, I might have a pamphlet and my friends uh, Patrick and uh, Martha who, who run um, Offered Road Books they were just like thinking about starting a, a press so I said we would we'll, really love to do that with yeah. you so that was exciting but then I kept adding more poems to it and more and more and then eventually I was like oh that's, this is actually a collection that's becoming quite coherent because um, I think Blue Movie is relatively coherent but I, I really, I'm really proud of this book yeah yeah, yeah. we're going to talk about those um, cliche question for a poet but I'm very interested in your response in this to wrap up the sort of writing process questions how do you personally know when a poem is finished if ever because yeah. lots of different answers to this. Yeah, and I think it goes back to just being really intuitive and just you just know, um, or or I do, um, and I think that reading it out aloud constantly is a really great way of figuring out if the flow comes to a, a nice end or an abrupt end, mm. depending on what effect you want to have. But I think reading it out loud constantly as as you're writing it is really important, and that that's something that I do a lot, and and then you can kind of tell sometimes. You might have a great line to end on, but you haven't quite built up the momentum to get to it yet. Yeah. So sometimes I've got the first line, the last line, some bits in the middle, and I'm just trying to find maybe a stanza or something before that last line. Yeah. But it's like the same with, with painting or, or anything creative, really. You, you can keep working at it, but I was always someone at school in, in art and writing who would uh, just do too much detail and destroy something with detail. Mm. So now the process is more going back to a poem that maybe is three pages long and then making it eventually half a page because I'm just cutting and cutting. And I think that's something that I'm doing much better because I used to write a lot of them in one go yeah. and then maybe tinker. Whereas now I'm much more comfortable in just really going at it with an axe you know i'm glad you said that about speaking aloud i'm constantly telling students to yeah. read their work aloud because yeah essential. it is totally essential because sometimes you know it, it just it looks okay on the page to you and in your the voice in your head but you read it aloud and you start to realize if you're stumbling across too many syllables mm -hmm. or or if um or if something just is, is too long or too short you really get a sense for that and I think when you're speaking aloud, if you're imagining you're doing it in front of people, it gives you that extra perspective. Yeah. Just like I used to share poems on Facebook and then um, people would sort of comment about them, you know, and you can sort of get a feel for um, for how it's going to be. But the reason I bring that up is because sometimes I'd post something on Facebook and then it's like a note. And then as soon as I, it was out there and people were reading it, I'd look at it and then I'd notice more mistakes. Yeah. So it's all about trying these little things that help me figure out what's wrong with a poem. Yeah. So you've got two collections we've been talking about, Blue Movie, obviously being the first of the two, and then Working Class Voodoo. And we spoke about how, you know, your 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 poems are very narrative poems. And I, I just want to say your use of imagery, I think, is incredible. I absolutely love some of the... And they're not easy topics, as we've said, but some of the imagery you conjure up to sort of what's the word emphasize you know the the what your message you're trying to push is, is incredible and the collections are similar in many respects but w what i want to ask you is how do they differ for people who haven't read them or thinking about picking them up what how do the two differ um well blue movie was written essentially when when my marriage was falling apart and my daughter was born so it was and i was still struggling with a lot of i was unmedicated untreated really um so i was going through a lot of mental health issues um, and I think Blue Movie kind of ends upon, you know, the, the separation of, of, of my ex and I. And um, and just, it, in a way, it feels like, I don't know, like I hadn't quite matured either. So by the end of that book, um, I kind of found a place that I wanted to continue. So Working Class Voodoo just is kind of a sequel. Mm. But in Working Class Voodoo, you know, we, we've been separated a while and I'm with, you know, a new partner and... Um, and I'm still struggling with mental health issues, um, but also I think writing about being a dad, about you know the the fears of parenthood and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, so I think that um, working class food is probably just a, a more mature version. Yeah, feet yeah. now on the head. Yeah, yeah. and Daljit Nagra obviously uh, endorsing working class food. How did that come about? Um, I think that that uh, Martha Martha Sprackland from from Offord Road Books just asked me who who who, sh who we should ask, and I, and I threw a few names out there, um, and they just 
yeah, just go, just go and be yeah. a blurb. Um, I, I hadn't really communicated to anybody about that. So when they, they, Richard Scott and yeah, I think um, it was just really, really fortunate. And I think that um, they they genuinely like my work, which is just amazing to me, and I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, they're just just really kind people who've um, who've just given me a bit of a break. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Blue moving and there's, there's, you know, I could ask you about almost every poem in there because they're the sort of poems that are so interesting and I've got you here in front of me. Yeah. But it's, I mean, you, you mentioned the sort of the separation and Hero, heroin lullaby, the last poem. Yeah. Very powerful. I wondered if you could sort of talk about that. And the other the other poem I've written down here is Signs of the Sun. There's yeah. Both two amazingly powerful poems. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, the... Heroin Lullaby was written when I was still living with my ex, but we were going through that that bad last patch where we hadn't quite separated yet. So it gave it more power, the fact that I was still there mm. and that these things were going on. And I found that, I guess maybe early on, that's, that's you know, going back to, you know, the confessional stuff and, and why I write about this, this certain stuff, it's because that that sharing and that feeling of uh, of really getting out there and sharing it with other people but also that idea of of setting the story straight for when my daughter's older so she can read it back yeah. and and know what happened um so sometimes it's that that feeling of of setting down my story because we all fear that you know you're just going to drop dead at any minute yeah, yeah, and that yeah. uh, you know whatever we've done we might not have achieved full potential and and things like that yeah but um it no it really it really helped me get through that time as well writing those kind of poems while I was still in a really bad situation it was um it was a relief and a retreat mm-hmm. yeah and working class voodoo is incredible and I always slate social media because you know people including myself waste so much time on it but if it wasn't for social media I'd have never found uh working class voodoo the poems that I've written down rocket swine I think it's amazing uh snook ginger I mean, Schnook was, uh, we was talking about that when we got out of the cab, sort yeah. of this idea of coming from a sort of council estate yeah. and then moving to a suburban area, but yeah. not, you don't quite feel like you deserve it almost. You yeah. sort of question it, don't you, in that? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a feeling of not deserving it, but um, still trying to trying to be grateful and not take it for granted. But yeah, I think the, the, the places I come from were so different to where I am now. And I think the one thing that poem really hits on is that is that feeling of you know all the is the hustle over those 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 days when and it was part of who I was as a, as a drug addict as well because mm. you know every day you get up and you know not you got to have your cigarettes you got to have some booze uh, then get the drugs then pay the dr- pay off the drug dealers and, and you're constantly in that cycle of uh, every day you don't know where the money is coming from and you don't know how you're going to get through that day with your habits and all that kind of stuff but it gave it that sense of, um, I hate to say it, but excitement, you know? Yeah. And that's one thing that the addicts do miss, it's that, it's that hustle every day. Because when you don't have that hustle, suddenly you've got all this time and you can be really in, um, you can be in a place where you're quite susceptible to relapse because suddenly everything's too quiet and everything's too normal and too, um, too responsible sometimes yeah but that's after being an addict for you know for a very long time it's just it's it's a period of adjustment talking about before the podcast was started recording but you know you moved out of Kidderminster to sort of go cold turkey but then moved back once you were and I'm saying that must have been incredibly difficult to return to the place you know where you was an addict yeah yeah and it's, it's still really really hard um one of the good things about what I did is is um so I was addicted to benzodiazepines. So my doctor's got me on Valium, and uh, it was like a huge relief to me. It was like, oh wow, this this feeling is what I've been after. Just, just tranquil, you know, to yeah. just be tranquilized. And then I found a contact who was getting me Xanax and uh, Mogadons and my Dazolams, things that um, were only administered in in surgery. And I was taking these every single day, right. and I was. Uh, it's it's something that can kill you if you go cold turkey, and that's what I I put myself at risk. Um, but I decided I need to leave Kidderminster um, because this is where my drug life was, and I went to stay with um, my friend Melissa Lee Horton, who's an amazing writer and, and poet, and she put me up for a few weeks, and 
it was horrific what I went through and I thought I was over the worst of it which is why I came back to Kidderminster to try and find somewhere to to have my daughter um, but I you know I, I didn't realize that the withdrawal had only just started to kick in mm. so when I got back I was an absolute mess and I couldn't leave my parents house could barely go to the toilet on my own you know it was it, it was horrific horrific uh, withdrawal um, but it was really difficult coming back to Kidderminster and it still is difficult to be here because on the street I'll pass old connections or um, or see people that did horrible stuff to me when I was growing up you know and it's so I guess still right in the world do I'm still trying to make sense and have a little kind of um, like escape hatch in a way yeah to, to survive being here but we're, we're here f for my daughter I don't think we'd be living in Kidderminster if, if I didn't have uh, shared custody and uh, the last poem in working class video rocket is sort of painfully beautiful in yeah. it sort of sums up all the emotions of working class voodoo in a way but yeah. I just wondered if you could talk briefly about that yeah that that poem took me about a year to write from um I had I had the first line in my head you know um I stand with a soft stunned um penniless parent in the park mm. I had that uh, I knew that I wanted to write about body dysmorphia in the poem and I knew that I wanted to address um uh, sexuality in the poem but essentially um and and also the the, the abuse that some of the abuse I went through as a kid but it all wrapped up neatly in this in this kind of um you know it's bookended by being in the park and really frightened for for what our children are you know going to go through but it was it was one of those poems where I knew I could get I could fit all those things in there the dysmorphia the sexuality um the working class stuff as well as yeah. abuse and parenthood and all that stuff and the reason it took me so long is because the poem kept like growing and then becoming shorter, but in in working out on it over a year, and that's one of the poems that I'm like really stupidly happy with, and, and probably wouldn't change a thing. That's brilliant, and again, testament to your imagery. That end image of you, your daughter going through the silver tube in the yeah, park yeah. and just wiping the mud out. It's perfect. And Swine, I thought was you know in, in the political climate we're in, a, a brilliant poem to talk about. Yeah, Swine was written in. So before we moved into this house. We had a house by this big park, and every, every all the neighbours that moved in, and there were a few while we were living there, maybe three or four different ones. But when we moved in, the neighbours were really aggressive. Um, they drank quite a lot. The guy would beat up his wife and the kids, and it was the police were coming out. And um, when the police used to come out to get him um, for for beating his wife up, he'd always kick off and be like, "What about him next door?" And he just he was obsessed with the fact that. Uh, he didn't see me go to work, yeah. uh, and he, he was sh he'd be shouting, "I work seventy-two hours a week," and and that's why that idea of that um, you know, I can hear them through the dividing chimney. Mm -hmm. um, I could hear them shouting, and I could see what was going on, and this um, and just picking up the 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 vibes of the area. You know what's been going on, whether it's racism or um, people feeling angry and lost, and, yeah. and all those kind of things, but. That was written pretty much in, in, in one in one sitting, that one. That mm. was one of those that I felt... And when you talk about endings earlier, sometimes if you sit and do it in one sitting, the, the ending can be so much easier because if you're playing with it for months... Like um, two and a row. Yeah, and you start second-guessing yourself. But sometimes if you do it in one and you're happy with it, you just stick it away for a while and look at it again and think, okay, that's cool. That's how I used to work, just try and get it out in one go. Yeah. Um, and that was one of those poems, yeah. And I can't not mention, we spoke about this again before recording, but thank you for swallowing my cum. That poem yeah. made the collection and uh, it caused quite a stir because it was chosen for the best British poetry anthology, but you come under fire by people saying it was uh, chauvinistic, glorifies objectification of women. So, I mean, that must have been a, a crazy time for you. I, just, I suppose my first question is, the poem itself, then, what you know, where where did that come from? What was the idea behind that? And then talk about yeah. the controversy after. So when I wrote that, I was living um, with a friend after separating from my ex. I've been sofa surfing for a few months, um, and then a friend very kindly put me up in his house. And around about that time, uh, my partner and I, who uh, who are together now, we we just started getting together, and um, and I uh, one day just wrote this this poem because I was so giddy with uh with the experience that i wrote, wrote about um because it never happened to me before and um i again wrote that in one sitting and just took it away and just thought that's just a silly thing i wrote yeah 
Um, and then there was a local um, poetry night that I, I took it down to read. And uh, my partner was in London at the time, but her best friend was at, at that event. And I read this poem and at the back, she was like, oh, fucking hell. And, I, and you could see her on the phone saying, he's reading this poem about you guys, you know, and it's, um, and it felt naughty. And I think there's sometimes that there's a cheekiness to doing that stuff. Mm. And it can be fun to, to sort of throw people off a bit. But after that, I didn't really think about it much. I, I submitted it to um, Body Literature, which is an online magazine. Um, and they, uh, Chris Crawford, the editor, took it. And I think he cut, the, the, there were two or three more lines at the end of that. I can't remember what they are now. But yeah. what he did as an editor is, you know, he said, well, cut those and end it um, where, it, where it ends. And uh, I was really happy with that. So that was published. Um, and people really liked it. There wasn't anything kicked off at that time. Uh, one of my favourite... Uh, poet Selena Garden. She um, she tweeted something really kind about it, and I uh, thought, okay, that that's it. And then when we were living in London in Peckham, I woke up one morning, my phone's blowing up, and uh, people are saying, have you seen what people are saying about you and all this? Um, and it was that day as well. I had this. It, it's because it was announced I was part of this anthology. So uh, Emily Berry edited this anthology, Best British Poetry, two thousand fifteen, I think, and. Because I was included in that, it gave it exposure, mm -hmm. and um, a blog was created in protest against the poem called, uh, uh, I think called Thank You, I think it was called Thank You for Swallowing. Um, yeah, so this this protest blog was set up, I believe, in America, and like the things people were saying about the poem were really upsetting to my partner at the time as well. Um, and looking back, there are there are things in the poem that I can definitely see being misconstrued or not necessarily misconstrued maybe I w it, it, there's a line about um about my ex that she didn't ever swallow my cum right and i think one of the things people thought that insinuated is that i expected her to have done that right. which is just not the case it just yeah. it just it was a simple fact it wasn't done and i was grateful that it was you know that was it was as simple as that but um and then we had a lot of people talking about it online and um I even I was in touch with some of the people who started the protest blog, and once they spoke to me, um, they were like, "Oh, actually, we, we're not ex you're not this person we thought you were." Yeah. And they were very kind, and and they even said in in interviews after that that they'd spoken to me, and that they don't believe that you know uh, that I was uh, that I was right in the things that they th in, they they thought I was. But I really respect that this protest blog was set up because it became a platform p for people, mainly women, to share their abusive experiences so something really good came out of it yeah. um, and a lot of people online really stepped to my sort of defence so I didn't really have to say too much about it but I was very obviously apologetic about it online mm. and wanted to make sure that um, that it didn't upset people but it, it, I mean it still does it still upsets people and people reviewed it and said I, you know I, I can't get on with that one yeah um, but I'm still glad it's it's in the collection and I think that that, that whole situation was like that I think having a controversial moment like that as well it, it can it can like I say make me more mindful of what I'm writing in the future yeah um, and not like I say not like censoring myself but making sure that I'm I'm not just saying throw away things that I can stand by everything now so I'm not gonna censor myself but I'm just gonna make sure that um, should anything like that happen again I can still completely stand by it yeah know? I think I think you know there's there's definitely space for poetry that does sort of warrant that reaction sometimes yeah. I think I think poetry like that is important the other theme in working class food and is obviously class um was more so in your second collection what would you say to because I have this argument all the time coming from sort of a working class background what do you say to people who sit there and claim in this day and age that the class system doesn't exist anymore in this country well um I think, see, coming from a working class background, I grew up around, you know, the ignorance and the, the sort of uh, racism, uh, homophobia, all these kind of horrible things. Um, so sometimes I find it difficult to write in a positive way about about where I am class-wise and, and what my opinions are and stuff like that. So there are some really great working class writers who are, um, you know, they're doing really good things, doing teaching in schools and prisons and all these kind of things. But I'm still, my my class status really troubles me. Mm. Not because of, of, of my position in it, but just because I'm not going to, I can't apologise for it. 
and I can't really forgive a lot of the stuff I grew up around. Yeah. So, um, but no, I mean, it's still, it's still a massive thing, class. I think um, it, it's worse than ever because what I'm seeing now is uh, working class people really turning against each other mm. as well. Um, and that, I don't, I'm not sure if that's the case with, you know, with the middle class or, and, and above, but it definitely feels like there's some real poison that's, that's just filtered down to us. You know, and that that we a lot of us struggle with. Yeah. Because I come from a working class background, but you know, I was signed off work when I was like, I don't know, twenty, twenty one, twenty two. So I'm thirty six now. So I'm I'm not personally working class. I'm, I'm probably because I'm on benefits. I guess you, it's um it's th- it's something that really troubles me that I'm definitely trying to figure out in the writing. Yeah. yeah. Post Brexit. So what's what do we think the future is for working class people? Because there's a lot of sort of uncertainty, and there are a lot of politicians scaremongering. And you sort of you know you talk about post Brexit Britain in in working class voodoo. Yeah. As as a writer, as someone who's lived in and amongst the working class, what do you see as the future, in your opinion, of post Brexit for the working class? Um, I'm not. I want to be optimistic. I was speaking with some friends in Manchester the other day about. Um, how many of us are constantly outraged you know you're checking the news uh, your news feed and stuff and you're seeing all these horrible things going on I said what do you think is the is the antidote at the moment to outrage and they said optimism and I thought that's, that's a really cool thing And I, but I'm not really that optimistic at the moment I think yeah. things are going to get really bad um, and potentially I mean sometimes things get really bad before they can get any better you know and I'm, I am concerned that things are getting worse, and I don't, I don't see it getting better at the moment. And that's something that is visible in Kidderminster now, mm. um, and as I'm sure it is over you know, many places across across the UK and around the world. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 something very tangible now. You can see it, and you're almost watching it happen day by day, piece by piece, the decay of it. Um, I, th- I think it's going to get worse. Um, but I can only remain optimistic in the sense that I hope that 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 breaks down something and creates something new. Yeah, no, yeah. I've heard that before. I know I was already mentioned him once today, but Pete Doherty, he's definitely said to things to get better have to get worse. So yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's what we're seeing. And there's a thing; it's it's hard to be immediately optimistic because we don't really have anything to 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 put that on right now. Mm. You can't lean on something. And go, this is my this is my crutch. This politician is my crutch, or yeah. this this party or this uh, this ideology. Um, things are just so scattered and, and messed up right now. It's it's sometimes I try and make sure I don't think about it too much in terms of art and writing and stuff because um, I have my own kind of agenda, which um, it's not probably something I can articulate really. It's something that is only happening when I'm actually being creative. But as for the the. I mean, like you say, there's there's some politics in in working class voodoo. Um, it's just trying to be, um, just kind of write, trying to sort of write down what's going on around me. Yeah, yeah. Um, being a father is obviously the, the the other thing that sort of really shines through, especially the second collection. How has it changed you as a person, and how has it changed you creatively? Because you get a real sense that you you do you know love being a father and yeah. you want to do all the right things for your yeah. daughter that that certainly comes through so how i mean the more obvious question is how did it change you as a person but creatively did you notice any changes uh creatively yes i think that isabel became my um she's just always present in the poems now um whether it's mentioning on a line or whether that she's the subject of it or whether she's just always there behind it and that's because yeah, becoming a parent was was huge, um, as it is, I'm sure, for everyone. But I think at the time I was a mess mental health wise, and that's when I was first put on uh, diazepam. Um, and so when Isabel was born, I kind of had to leave behind this really crazy life of, because uh, you know I I kind of grew up with that idea of the the romanticism of being you know a, a you know drugged up kind of writer and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes you real, you know. You got to suddenly, you got to grow up, and you got to be responsible, and you got to stop being immature in that way. And it still took me a few years to to figure out what I was doing and how to uh, and how to navigate being a parent. But sh- I think being a good dad is very important to me to the point where I know I'm a good dad, but I want to be 
an even better dad all the yeah. time. You know, it's like the idea of knowing that my pot- potential is so much more. The same with writing, the same with anything that I do in life. I think I, I could be so much more. But I think also one writing about the things I do is, is also a, an explanation for Isabel when, when she's older and she can see you know what was going on and what I was doing and that you know the the things I went through the reckless behavior and the um you know the addictions and all that it was a process that that wound down and then I was able to 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 get control of yeah um but I yeah absolutely love being a dad and I think that um there are quite quite a few of um quite a few poets I I'm friends with or admire have become parents and they and they're writing a lot about it as well yeah um and it's it's kind of cool to see, but then I saw someone post something on Twitter the other day saying that you're kind of being elitist if you're doing that because you're kind of cutting out people who aren't parents. If you're writing about being a parent, I thought, well, that's you know, people write about all sorts of things, and it's yeah. going to exclude some somebody. Yeah. Um, so it, it made me think, oh gosh, have I become one of those, you know, people who just writes about their kids all the time? But I could I could easily go down that route if I indulged it too much. I, I don't think I don't think that's true of your writing. I I think there's a, still a really nice mix in, especially yeah. working class voodoo. Yeah. You do get that sense that you're enjoying being a father. But yeah. I mean, there's other poems such as you know, thank you for swallowing my comment we spoke about. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, yeah, there's there's something about the fear as well. I think fear and go back to politics as well as as parenthood that you know the fear of the current climate the fear of of your kids going through stuff um i think fear can be can be useful for some people mm. as a creative tool and i think that fear can uh, trigger certain responses in you and can make you think differently so i do try and use that fear yeah i wish i could live without it but um you know while it's here might as well utilize it yeah yeah similar to i hear a lot of people say stress at work that if they didn't if they didn't have that stress it wouldn't motivate them to sort of do their job but it's sort of a weird way of looking at it but it makes it makes sense yeah Yeah. A, a sort of big question i'm asking everyone that comes on the podcast is um why why is it in your personal opinion do you think people turn to poetry in times of need i think that i think in writing and reading poetry there's something definitely shared that is an experience because when you're writing you're slowing things down and you're trying to to write about them as best you can and as a reader um you're experiencing that you're 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 slowing down as well and having that moment and i think it, it it makes you slow down in a world where we're being bombarded by you know images and ideas and information whereas a poem it's like a magnification that the, both the poet and the reader is both involved with because both of you have slowed this moment down mm. onto a page and then you, you can experience it differently to, let's say, uh, a novelist or something like that because you know that takes time. But the same with like short stories as well. You can, you can share this moment, but I think with poetry, there's something about making you feel more alive uh, in the sense of appreciating being alive. Sometimes I read a poem and I'm just happy to just look out the window and feel things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm sure many people say this, but that feeling of, of communicating with people, sharing, and, and again, feeling less less lonely in the world you're in. Um, I think poetry is, you know, we've had the Insta poetry that's become really popular as well, and some, some people are quite critical of that, but as long as, as long as people are into it, I think that's really cool. I mean, as a, as a working class person growing up poetry was certainly not something that was encouraged or 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 anybody around me was doing you know yeah yeah so uh what's next for you um so i'm i'm painting a lot um i'm, I'm working on a bunch of new poems i'm still trying to figure out this i've got this idea for this this book which is about a fictional council estate and it's and the, and the people that live there and the things that go on um, and I'm going to try and use that as a place to put all these um, all these memories and all these things that I'm obsessed with about the past and creating something slightly different so it doesn't have to be me yeah. talking about my myself and my wounds and you know going through traumas and stuff but I think one thing that's really changed my uh, traje- trajectory is um, people walking out of my poetry readings uh, they're just a every time now so and I do give content warnings when I, when I get up and I say um, if anybody wants to leave um, you'll it, it's fine to do so I won't be offended and I just want you guys to know that there might be something in it that might be upsetting yeah. and stuff yeah 
still, you know, people running out crying, you know, um, that one I did recently in, in Worcester. Um, I got a few lines in and a woman at the front, she got up in tears and ran out and her husband stood up, gave me a filthy look and, and followed her. And then it just, this pattern, it, it's not, it doesn't make me feel very good. Yeah. Um, and then some people are taught to go, well, that's what's great about your work. And I think that it's, if people are doing that, then it's important, but it doesn't make me feel good to make pe people go through that. So what that's done is it's made me think about writing fiction again, um, and not being you know this this sort of confessional poet all the time. Um, but I'm still working on a bunch of poems that that might end up becoming you know a third instalment to follow Blue Moving Work Class Voodoo because yeah. I've got a bunch of stuff that's not going to fit anywhere else, and if I can just add a few more things to it. Um, but I'm, I definitely want to try and do something that isn't so. Uh, traumatic for other people as well because I know that I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of trauma in my work and um, it is difficult for people to read and when you hear people say oh you know this poet that we both really admire well she said she can't even look at your work it's just too difficult it's too upsetting and um, you know that's not connecting is it or, yeah. or it might be connecting in a, in a kind of broad sense with, with people who can deal with it but I can't help but thinking about the people who can't I think from speaking to you today is, I mean, there's definitely a place for a third collection, and I think people like myself would definitely read that and sort of welcome it with open arms. But yeah, maybe the fictional break might do you as well some some good, and to, to be able to connect with those other people, as you say. Yeah, and I think that you know the the, the book that I'm going to do about this kind of council estate and its and its creepy residents and these stories that I'm going to put that are going to be a lot of them from my own experience and other people's, and just try and create something a, a little world that I can put all that stuff and not have it affect me so so yeah. profoundly yeah so the, the fiction is something that I'm playing with a lot at the moment uh, the start it's I'm making maps and things so I know what houses are where and where these buildings are and then, and then I'm starting to inhabit it with with people cool. and and that's how that world is slowly growing up from you yeah. know from the ground up but the poetry and it's the process is still pretty much the same with writing something that I feel very you know it might be upsetting for me but I feel that relief having written it but yeah so fiction new poetry and an artwork really yeah and you're doing outspoken in my neck of the woods down in London South Bank September 26th that seems like quite a good quite solid lineup that one yeah that's right and I might this might even be an opportunity for me to read some of the the new really really difficult stuff and then I think after that, I mean, I might not do that again for a while. So um, it might be, it might be the last opportunity for for people if they're about to to come and see what I do, um, because I do feel that, that there's a chance that things are going to change, yeah. and I might not go back to to what I've been doing. I need to challenge myself. I think that as an artist, that's really important. Yeah, it all sounds very healthy. I'll definitely be there. Come and support you. Um, uh, leaves me just last two questions I always ask people where can people find you then in terms of social media I find it quite interesting you spoke very positively about social media for normally with mental health people yeah. go the opposite way but where can people find you on social media and are there any local sort of Kidderminster Worcester based poets that I would not necessarily know about that I should be reading yeah social media has been been very very good to me so it's really difficult for me to criticize it mm. because as much as as anyone that i can waste time looking at things that are kind of irrelevant or, or aren't really important or aren't really uh nourishing me in any sort of creative sense but i sell my work online i get gigs online uh, i get to be in touch with all these amazing people yeah. um i sell my artwork online if i was to not have an online presence i wouldn't have made um half the, the progress that I've made. It's a place to, to sell work. I mean, uh, I, I, I use Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, I'm not like massively using Twitter every day. I know a lot of poets moved from Facebook to Twitter, I found when they got big book deals with Faber and stuff yeah. like that. They uh, seem to disappear, and I, and I wish I could have done that at that time, because as I say, I don't think Facebook is the same as when I, I started using it because I came to the internet even quite late because where we were we were in a high rise that didn't have the internet right. so I didn't really have the internet that I could use regularly until I was like 26 so up until that point I was sending work through you know yeah. through the post and all that kind of stuff but yeah I think that um, it's if you if you can't get out and network you, you can have to have a social media presence I think that it's a rare person who can um, 
avoid all of that, yeah. um, not network, and then expect to make any impact on the scene at all or in the community. So I think that you, you've got to try and maintain a, a healthy balance with it. I try not to share as much as I used to. I used to write these long, really creative posts and then just think, well, actually, I could have done something creative with that yeah. if, you know, instead of just entertaining them. A few people letting them know where I am in life, but um, but yeah, I think uh, and as as for local Worcester poets, um, I'm not really very up on on what's going on around here yeah. because we we had some events locally that kind of shut down a while ago. Um, well, maybe not Worcester poet, but I mean poets that you're reading or that that maybe I've not heard of because there was a few yeah. names you dropped in the cab up here that I hadn't heard of. Yeah, I think. Um, uh, another interesting person to speak to would be uh, Martin Hayes, who wrote a book called Raw, uh, spelled R-O-A-R. Um, he works in a courier kind of office, um, and he's the guy who, uh, he's the controller, sends out all his work to uh, these couriers in this place in London. And um, he's almost lost his job because his bosses have found out he's been writing about his experience working in these conditions. Yeah. But um, he is, I mean, he's just been reviewed by Andrew McMillan in Poetry Review, which is like a really big thing for, you know, working class writers, yeah. you know. But you should definitely, definitely check out Martin Hayes. Um, he's the first one that really comes to mind because of his work being so powerful for this, the current political climate. You know, he's writing about how people, uh, you know, just, just, how they're just like working themselves to death for, yeah. for other people's money and stuff. He's, he's someone you should really, really get involved with. But I've got so many names I can't, I can't really think of. Yeah, there's just so many people I don't want anyone to be offended or feel left yeah. out. You know, it's always a horrible question to ask. It's mainly me being selfish. But also, um, Melissa Lee Horton, who's um, an amazing poet. She, she, um, she's the one who, who took me in with her family when I was going through the worst part of, of drug withdrawal. Um, and her books are amazing. Yeah. Um, she's an incredible poet. She's one of those poets who, you know, when we lived together for that for that brief point, you know, it was like um, almost like uh, Van Gogh and Gauguin in that in that yellow house together, you know, because yeah. we'd we'd go downstairs and have tea, and then she'd be writing, I'd go off the attic, and I'd be writing. It was really cool. Um, and she's really cool, and she's been through so much. Uh, I think she's just got a, a, a new novel out uh, called That Lonesome Valley. Um, but most of her books are with pen in the margins, and if you could ever get to talk to Melissa, that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah she's she's incredible. She's like a sister to me. Yeah. And you are, as you said, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Is yeah. it Bob's Parker? Is it on? It is. Yeah. Um, I do have a website, but we've kind of uh, had to take it down for a bit of maintenance. But um, there there should be a website back up soon, and that if you just search Bobby Parker poet, it should come up as the, as the first thing. But we're hoping to get that back up in, in about a month, um, and that's where you can find what I'm you know what I'm up to, what events I'm doing, um, and I use it also to to share my artwork and paintings as well. Which is also amazing as well. Thank Love you. your artwork. Yeah. Um, I'm looking very much forward to September. Yeah. Thank you for writing what you do. Keep doing what you do. It's been fascinating. Thank you for chatting to me. Thank you very much for coming to see me today, Jimmy. It's been really cool. This episode's poetry recital comes from Amber Nicole Smith. Now, I discovered Amber through Instagram. I'm really finding Instagram an amazing source these days to discover brand new poets and established poets and a wealth of work. This poem from Amber she put up in September of last year and it has stayed with me for a long time because I had a very close friend take his life shortly after I heard that poem and it really resonated with me and it's called Suicide Boys and I think everything about it rings true. It's very powerful stuff. Here it is. Make some noise for the Suicide Boys in a world so rough, in a world where they have to pretend to be tough. Don't mention emotions, don't call his bluff because he don't fuck around with that feeling stuff. Because feelings are a sign of weakness, even if it means living in total bleakness. He's got to be strong just like his dad, because no one can know he feels like he's going mad. Trying to bury thoughts he wish he never had, not even his mum knew he was feeling this bad. His body is filled with fear and loathing, disguised under three stripes and baggy clothing. No one to talk to, not even his best mate, looks at his reflection and what he sees he hates. 
but we only clock on when it's a little too late. It's all right, bruv, I'm fine, because for these men, killing themselves is the first sign, the biggest cause of death for men under 45. Each week, 84 men no longer have the will to survive. That's 84 men who should still be here alive. Let's cut the stigma around mental health for males and fix the system that keeps continuing to fail. Another episode comes to its conclusion. A massive thank you to Bobby Parker for allowing me into his home and to chat for as long as we did. Fascinating stuff. Do check out his two collections, Blue Movie, but Working Class Voodoo, phenomenal and really provocative in pushing the boundaries of what poetry is. I urge you to check that out. Massive thank you to Amber as well for allowing me to use that poem. I really, really love that poem. Please keep doing what you're doing. Amazing stuff. Hopefully we can chat to you on the podcast soon. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone. We're on Facebook and Instagram, People's Poetry Podcast. We're over on Twitter at people underscore poetry. I'm on Twitter at Poems. Be sure to give us a follow on Spotify, Acast, SoundCloud or iTunes, wherever it is you are listening to this show from. And once again, thank you for joining me. But more importantly, thank you for choosing poetry. Until next time.